Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're continuing Chapter 11. Chapter 11 continued, Atlantic Challenge. The second week brought an anniversary, which made me a little homesick. It was my birthday. After I arrived in Barbados and people asked how old I was, I used to reply, I was 28 at sea. My luck was in that day and offered me a sort of birthday present. My homemade fishing line, the hook baited with a piece of flying fish, was trailing in the wake when a big bird, which in English is called a shearwater, and for which I have yet to find the French name, pounced on the bait. I pulled it slowly inboard, a little worried in case he might peck holes in my inflated rubber floats. No sooner did I have him in the dinghy than he seemed to have an attack of seasickness, vomiting all over the deck. The creature was only half-conscious, and with a slight feeling of repugnance, I wrung its neck. I had never eaten raw bird meat in my life, but after all, steak tartar is a delicacy, so why not the flesh of a bird? My strong advice to those who catch a seabird is not to pluck it, but to skin it, as the skin is very rich in fat. I cut my shearwater in two, ate one half immediately, and left the other half to dry in the sun for the next day. But I was soon disillusioned if I thought my birthday dinner was going to give me any respite from my imposed diet. The flesh was excellent, but it had an undeniable taste of fish. During the night, I received something of a shock. Through my tent, I noticed a curious light. At first, I thought I had somehow caught fire, but it was only my half of shearwater giving out a strong phosphorescent light, so strong that it was reflected on the sail, giving it quite a ghostly appearance. The 28th of October brought an event which was to have dire consequences, although I didn't realise it at the time. I broke the strap of my watch, one of those self-winding models actuated by movements of the wrist. I fixed it to the front of my sweater with a pin, assuming that my movements would keep it going, but in the cramped interior of the dinghy, they were to prove insufficient. It stopped soon afterwards, and it was too late to set it again. It became impossible to determine with any certainty what progress I was making to the west, the direction of the islands where I hoped to land. This incident brought home to me how much the aimlessness of doing what I pleased, of not deciding in advance how to occupy my day, was beginning to weigh upon me. I decided to work out a strict timetable of activity. I am convinced that in any such circumstances, it is essential for the castaway to remain master of events, rather than be content merely to react to them. In order to get away from the constant and unrelieved proximity of the sea, I decided to adopt the peasant's habit of getting up and going to bed with the sun. At dawn, I collected the flying fish which cannoned unsuspectingly into the sail during the night and fell on top of the tent. I collected the first on the third day out and during the rest of the voyage picked up between five and fifteen every morning. I ate the two largest for my breakfast, then I fished for an hour, catching more than enough food for the day. I divided my haul into two parts, one for lunch and one for dinner. Why did I not change my meal hours, it may be asked, instead of eating at the accepted times of morning, noon and evening? Well, I felt that, having already altered so radically the nature of my food, it would only place an additional strain on my stomach to change its working hours. It had acquired the habit of secreting certain gastric juices at certain times 
in order to digest the food it received, and I saw no point in disrupting its functions further. After the hour's fishing, I devoted the same amount of time to a minute inspection of the boat. The smallest area of friction could have proved fatal. The back of a book, the deck boards, even the radio, rubbing gently on one spot would have sufficed to wear a hole in the rubber floats in a few days. Those who now visit the heretic in the Naval Museum in Paris will note that despite all my precautions, there is quite a worn surface on the right-hand side, where I used to rest my back. At the end of 48 hours, I noticed with a shock that the mere fact of leaning against the inner wall had been sufficient to rub off the paint. I had to find something to put between myself and the float to prevent further friction. Once the paint had gone, I would start wearing away the rubberized canvas, rendering it no longer watertight. I put my ear to the floats to check if I could hear any sign of rubbing, rather like a doctor sounding someone's chest cavity with a stethoscope, and carried out this inspection every day. Like a human lung, the air-filled float transmitted and amplified noises. The faintest sound would have enabled me to track down a puncture. I took a further precaution. There was clearly going to be a gradual loss of pressure in each section of the floats, not necessarily identical. At night, I therefore closed the valves between the sections, leaving them open during the day. If one of the sections had lost more air than the other, there would have been a whistle as air passed through the valve to compensate the pressure when I turned the cock each morning. Thank God this was something that never happened. But the detailed morning inspection, when I ran my fingers over the whole surface, combined with this sounding, several times saved me from catastrophe. Every castaway should regard this tireless vigilance as an imperative necessity. I then did half an hour's exercises to tone up my muscles and keep myself supple, after which I caught the two coffee spoons or so of plankton I needed to keep scurvy at bay. This took me between 10 and 20 minutes. The trouble was that any net trailed from the boat acted as a break, and I had to make up my mind whether to catch just a little plankton and keep up my speed, or gather enough to serve as food and reduce the day's run. I therefore decided that as long as there were plenty of fish, I would treat the plankton as a sort of medicine for its vitamin C content. Noon was the time for taking my position. To make quite sure of getting a good sight, I spent half an hour beforehand practicing with the sextant, as the dinghy was always very unsteady. As the sun rose to its zenith, the increase in the angle got smaller and smaller until it appeared to remain steady. That was the crucial moment. In spite of the great difficulties caused by my lack of elevation above the horizon, I soon became very adept at this little game. The mistake to avoid was that of taking the crest of a wave for the true horizon. The swell was strong but regular, as there was no nearby coast to modify its pattern. It had a rhythm in which every sixth or seventh wave was higher than the others, and its summit gave me a clear view of the horizon. Focusing through the eyepiece of the sextant, I used to count the waves without looking at them, and then on the seventh, I took the bearing. At that second, I had to make the lower rim of the sun coincide with the line of the horizon by adjusting the arm of the sextant so that they appeared in the eyepiece in exact juxtaposition. Although I had been anything up to 10 miles out of my calculations at the beginning of the voyage, by the end of a week, I was determining my latitude to within a mile or so. The afternoon was the longest and most difficult part of the day, with no way of hiding from the pitiless sun. 
I devoted the time to reading, writing, and my medical studies. At two o'clock, I gave myself a complete physical checkup, blood pressure, temperature, state of the skin, nails and hair, condition of the mucous membranes, noting the sea and air temperatures, humidity and weather conditions. Then I subjected myself to a sort of examination of my state of mind and morale and tried to exercise my memory, after which I read the books and music scores I had with me and did regular translation work. When the sun passed behind my sail, giving me some respite from its rays, I carried out my evening medical examination, measurement of urine, muscular strength, stools passed, plus a resume of the day's activities, the day's haul of fish, its quantity and quality and the use I had made of it, a note of the day's plankton catch, its nature, quantity and taste, and a description of the seabirds I had seen. Dusk brought the night's sleep, and I allowed myself the luxury of an hour or two listening to the radio after the evening meal. During the course of the voyage, one problem became increasingly insistent, to discover the best position to take up when sitting became uncomfortable, which it soon did. Either I used to sit on the floats, my legs hanging down, or on the deck boards, my back resting against one float and my legs on the other. In the first position, my legs grew heavy, and I ran the risk of edema of the ankles. In the second, not only did my raised legs start to ache, but they had to lie across the oars, which bit into them, and forced me to change my position continually. Sometimes I stretched out on the planks, but as I was starting to lose weight, my bones began to ache on the hard surface, and I could not maintain the position for long. It was practically impossible to stand upright. The best I could manage was to squat on half-flexed knees, balancing against one of the floats in interminable contemplation of the sea. As an additional security precaution, I had fastened a line about 25 yards long round my waist with the end attached to the base of the mast. The dinghy was remarkably stable, but I only had to change position for it to rock and I always needed to hold on to something. Fortunately, it neither pitched nor rolled, but just rocked. Nevertheless, I always had the feeling that a single wave might put an end to the whole expedition. All round me, giant waves were breaking with a noise like thunder. Any one of them breaking over the dinghy could have made short shrift of both the experiment and my life. On the 28th of October, I noted, I am not dreaming about food, a good sign. Indeed, it was the best proof that I was not hungry, because hunger is above all an obsession. I had no cravings of any sort. The next day, I was suddenly overwhelmed by the thought of the grave situation I was in. Apart from its length, this part of my voyage had an inexorable quality absent from the previous lapse. It was impossible for me to stop or turn round. There was not the slightest possibility of any help. I was just a drop in the ocean, part of a world not to be measured in human terms. I often had cold shivers down my spine, and I had not sighted a ship for some time. The previous day, I had seen my first shark since leaving the Canaries, but it passed quickly by. The dolphins, on the other hand, had become familiar acquaintances. I even talked to them at times as the only friends in sight. When I woke up during the night, I was always struck by the beauty of these creatures, swimming parallel to me and leaving phosphorescent wakes like some shooting star. From sheer curiosity, I thought I would see what effect the beam of electric torch would have. As soon as I switched it on, all the fish concentrated in its circle of light. I was still lost in admiration of their intricate evolutions, which I could direct more or less at will, 
when a sudden buffet forced me to clutch the side of the boat. It was a large shark, the upper part of its tail much longer than the lower. It had turned over on its back to swim towards me. All its teeth flashed in the light of the torch, and its underside gleamed pure white. It butted its snout repeatedly on the side of the dinghy. Whether it was trying to take a good bite, I do not know, but I had always heard that sharks turn on their back to seize their prey. I was much alarmed, being not at all accustomed to such rough manners. The only shark I had seen up till then between Casablanca and the Canaries had followed me at a respectful distance, but this one had probably lived too far out to sea to learn such civilised behaviour. I snapped out the light, in the hope that it would go away. For a moment or two its tail continued to beat around me like the cracks of a whip, splashing me with seawater from head to foot. Its white stomach appeared from time to time amid the phosphorescence, but then, presumably bored by my inactivity, it made off. It is more than likely that the shark was serious, but I comforted myself with the thought of how difficult it must be to bite a football. This somewhat reassured me, but I hoped that in future uh, such undesirable guests would keep their distance. I had also learned my lesson and never again flashed my torch on the sea. From that day, encouraged by the complete absence of any sea traffic, I also decided to save paraffin by no longer showing a navigation light. My morale was still high, although I was beginning to suffer from the cold at night, the effects of immobility and the consequences of never being dry due to the humidity. I was beginning to show the first physical effects of my ordeal. I noted in my logbook, have lost the nail of the small toe on my right foot, and there is a strange rash probably due to the salt on the backs of my hands, afraid of getting boils which I know will be terribly painful and which I would try not to treat in order to give no false values to the experiment. I have a few antibiotics on board, but if I use them, future castaways may object that they had no medications. Have made up my mind only to use them as a last resort. I was also experiencing the first general effects of solitude and fatigue, and found myself comparing my situation with a more normal existence, and paying a heavy price for all the pleasant days I have spent on land, I noted, and, still the optimist, I comforted myself by calculating that I only had between 25 and 40 days to go. It is amusing, although at the time it was rather pathetic, to see how the route I marked on my chart betrayed my nostalgia for dry land. On reaching latitude 21 degrees north, I shall turn right, taking 255 degrees instead of 230. Even the figures begin to read like highway numbers, and I really felt at the time that my next move was to take the first turning to the right. I felt that I should be able to find my way about the limitless ocean as one does about a town, just because I knew where I wanted to get to. In writing up the log, I have missed taking my latitude. No matter, I can do it tomorrow. There's plenty of time. After all, Columbus took 22 days at this time of year for the same voyage. I am expecting to do it in 35 or 40 I must learn to vegetate and live the contemplative life. If I think too much, the day seems to last longer. The next entry asked a question. I wonder if things would be easier if I was not alone. I really think so. Why is Jack not here? Well, it is no good thinking about it. My God, this trade wind is strong. As long as the sail holds out, it's all right. I shall get there more quickly and I am absolutely soaked. Thursday the 30th.
was a day of delirious optimism. The entry reads, Another 23 days, which would have meant my arrival on the 23rd of November, but I did add as a rider, providing all goes well. This optimism may seem surprising and sound as though I am inventing it after the event, especially in view of the possible duration of the voyage I had already calculated, but I had always borne in mind the necessity of making a generous allowance to calm the fears of those at home. Had I said that the crossing would take 35 days rather than 60, my family and friends would have started worrying after 20 days instead of after 30 or perhaps 40. A beautiful day and night, calm and without incident, I dreamed about my library of gramophone records. A plane passed right above me, certainly without seeing me, slightest friction still a menace. This last remark referred to the tiny inflatable emergency dinghy which I kept in the bow of the boat so that I could blow it up rapidly and launch it in the event of some accident. During the night, one of the guy ropes of the sail had rubbed constantly against it, making a neat little round hole. Only one night of friction by some quite light body was therefore sufficient to puncture the rubberized tissue. It was a very salutary example, although my first reaction was one of severe shock. In the case of any accident to the heretic, I no longer had anything to keep me afloat. It is true that my chances of survival in the emergency dinghy would have been extremely small. It was a small, one-man float designed to save people in difficulties near the beach. I can hardly believe it would have got me across the Atlantic. However, the damage deprived me of the pleasure of launching it at the end of a line so that I could photograph the heretic forging ahead in the middle of the Atlantic under full sail. In fact, circumstances were reducing me more and more to the condition of a real castaway. In my case as well, the craft I was in was my last chance. I'm counting up the days too often and it only seems to make the time pass more slowly. My catch of fish is diminishing in number but increasing in weight. can now drink from the fish daily by cutting slits in the flesh. It is no longer necessary to cut them into pieces and use the press. No longer need to keep any pieces in my shirt to dry for further use. What a superb day. Fresh trade wind starting to fall off somewhat. It is now a strong breeze, but still from the right direction. As far as I can make out, the latitude is about 21 degrees 28 minutes north, more or less in the estimated time. I was to learn later that the longitude was only about 18 degrees or 19 degrees west. At the time, however, I was convinced that I only had to make another 35 degrees to the west and 4 degrees to the south, that is to say 1800 or 1900 miles, and I was sure I had already covered a quarter of my route. My true position will be appreciated in due course. The entry for Friday 31st of October was as following. Wind freshened a little during the night, making good speed. A superb shearwater flew over, and I tried to catch it thinking nostalgically of the bird on my birthday, but this one refused to cooperate. The previous evening had been splendid, and I listened to Schubert's lovely Seventh Symphony. Curiously enough, it became almost the signature tune of the voyage, because although it is not played all that often, I heard it six times during the 65 days I was at sea. I was still bursting with optimism, and noted the same day, should sight land at any time after Saturday, 22nd of November. I was in fact destined to see it on the 23rd of December, a whole month later. I already seemed to be having doubts about my navigation, as I noted at four o'clock. 
navigation is by no means a simple affair. There is all this business of declination to be taken into account, but my Atlantic route chart does not give it. The problem is to know what headway I have made to the west, whether the compass course is a true one, or whether the westward variation has altered. If the variation is more westward, then I am on a more southward course than I think. The change in my latitude should have confirmed this, but my true speed is so difficult to measure that it is almost impossible to navigate by dead reckoning. Assume that I am making 80 miles a day, an estimate which was to prove stupidly optimistic. Should do better still, even more crazy. The most important thing is to remain between the 17th and 18th degrees of latitude north. Tomorrow, if I am right on course, I should be on 20 degrees 20 minutes north. The trade wind is marvellous. Longitude is about 26 degrees 40 minutes. That was a real error. I was still approximately on the 18th degree, which leaves about 33 degrees to go the west, roughly 1,700 miles, say 22 or 23 days at 80 miles a day. Then I added, if the wind holds, that must be the pattern of it. Surely I must know as much about navigation as Christopher Columbus. The solitude must have been starting to affect me the day I wrote that. I had begun to understand the difference between solitude and isolation. Moments of isolation in ordinary life can soon be ended. It's just a question of going out of the door into the street or dialing a number on the telephone to hear the voice of a friend. Isolation is merely a matter of isolating oneself. But total solitude is an oppressive thing and slowly wears down its lonely victim. It seems sometimes as if the immense and absolute solitude of the ocean's expanse was concentrating right on top of me, as if my beating heart was the centre of gravity of a mass which was at the same time nothingness. The day I dropped the toe of Las Palmas, I thought that solitude was something I would be able to master once I had become accustomed to its presence on board. I had been too presumptuous. It was not something I had carried with me, something that could be measured by the confines of myself or the boat. It was a vast presence which engulfed me. Its spell could not be broken, any more than the horizon could be brought nearer. And if from time to time I talked aloud in order to hear my own voice, I only felt more alone, a hostage to silence. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. 
So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.